you know, what makes something scripture? Is it a vote? Is it, you know, thus saith the Lord? Is it, uh, you know, from the Doctrine and Covenants, whatever a prophet speaks when moved upon by the Holy Ghost? Um, you know, uh, you know, what makes scripture? And then on the other end, when it doesn't make the cut any longer, you know, what do you do? How do you decanonize it? How do you determine uh, what to do with it? So this is run, this one's really fascinating because it seems like across the broad Latter-day Saint tradition, no one really knows what to do with this. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall. We don't do these kind of episodes very often where we have multiple uh, people in multiple locations being able to join together for one fantastic episode. Why, do you ask? Do we not do that very often? It is a scheduling nightmare. We have scheduled this opportunity to chat multiple times. We're doing it today because we got everybody here uh, welcoming in Chris Blythe, Christine Blythe, and Jay Burton. It is no coincidence that the Blythes have uh, the same last name. They are, in fact, married to each other. It's great to have you guys all here. Great Thank to be here. We're excited. Now, Jay, I have never uh, met you or been introduced to you before. I would love it if in... You know, let's pretend it's a Sunday school uh, kind of introduction and you're the new person in the ward. If you would take just a brief moment and put yourself in context so people can go, oh, Jay. And then we'll obviously go to Christine and then Chris. Okay, sounds good. Uh, yep, Jay Burton. Um, I'm a religious studies and historic history graduate and then um, did some work in the library science. That was my master's degree. And so I've been working in the archives for the last 13 years, the church history um, library, and um, studying studying schism in Mormonism and and the, the wider Latter-day Saint movement. All right. Welcome, Jay. Welcome to you now, Christine. Hey, I'm Christine Blythe. I have an undergraduate in religious studies. I have a master's degree in folklore uh, for the past for so years, I was the folklore archivist of the William A. Wilson Folklore Archives at uh, BYU Special Collections, and that was wonderful. In July, I took a position as the executive director of the Mormon History Association. So that's what I'm doing now. Yeah. And then he's no stranger to these microphones. We've had him in before uh, with his book, Terrible Revolution. It's Chris Blythe. Yeah, I'm Chris Blythe. I'm a professor of folklore and literature at BYU. Um and I, uh, I study folk religion among Latter-day Saints. So, uh, before we before we get into uh, the main thrust of what we're going to talk about, you guys have, uh, I think it's still called co-authored when it's three of you. I never know because co always seems like it should be two. We'll say co-authored the three of you guys. This book. Uh, I want to know a couple things. One, people hear folklore and the church, and and tell me what that is exactly. And then because uh, you know. There are some base level listeners. Schism is another word, and I'm going to ask you to kind of give me an idea what that is, Jay. But let's start with folklore with the Blythes. What 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 do we mean by folklore? Yeah, so we don't probably touch on a lot of folklore in this book, but when we talk about folklore, we're talking about kind of the unofficial religion of the people. So rather than talking about the canonized or what the, you know, in the case of Latter-day Saints with general authorities, the prophet is saying, it's what the people are are living, experiencing. It's the lived religion, the um, the way that Latter-day Saints are interpreting scripture or, um, uh, yeah, just living their everyday religion. Okay. So, and to Chris, schism you with you, Jay. No, I think you did a great job. <laughs> yeah, so on, on schism, 
Um, I think I think for Latter-day Saints, the, the easiest way to see it is, is the aftermath of the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram is, is um, Brigham Young and the apostles hurry back to Nauvoo. Sidney Riggin hurries back to Nauvoo. Um, James Strang is formulating his plans in 1844, and um, you have the confrontation between Sidney's plan for keeping the church going versus uh, Brigham and the Apostles' plan for keeping the church going, and there's a split, there's a schism, and uh, the, the people that stay in Nauvoo, um, some eventually join with the re reorganization, some go and, and join with Strang, some actually travel east and, and join with Sidney Rigdon in his new church. And um, but the thing the thing to remember about all of this is that it wasn't totally clear to all parties what should happen. Mm -hmm. um, there there are different versions of what should happen. That's why there was that's why there was a break. And so um, clearly the majority of the of the saints in Nauvoo went west. But um, other groups who were not in Nauvoo and didn't have a strong relationship with Brigham Young and the Apostles didn't come west and and formed uh, formed churches with Strang and Rigdon and eventually the reorganization and others. And uh, yeah, that's that's the schism. All right. Good. Getting everybody on the same playing field so we make sure we know what was already mentioned. Who wants to tell me, uh, so the book Open Canon, Scriptures of the Latter-day Saint Tradition, who wants to tell me sort of the, um, oh, I don't know, how how we got started even in this project? Give me the genesis of of who went to who and what said what and how how we did that. Who wants to tell that story? I'll, I'll go there. Um, yeah, so the three of us were undergraduates at Utah State. Uh, back in the 2005-6-7-ish era, um, Chris and I became friends as we as we joined in the religious religious studies department or now religious studies program mm -hmm. in history department. And um, as it turned out, we became two of the very first graduates in that program. Um, but we we became friends. Um, we we did several projects together. Uh, we we formed the religious studies club at Utah State. We which, started... by the way, for people who don't know, that is where all the cool kids are hanging out. Is in that club. Make Darn no right. mistake, that is where the cool kids. Go ahead. I'm sorry. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's very true. <laughs> uh, then let's see. So religious studies club. Yeah, we 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 uh, started a journal um, that lasted for several years. Um, and it's called the Intermountain West Journal of Religious Studies. And then we also, um, in in the evenings, we were talking and we we hatched a plan to to write a book or two together about the the wire ladders tradition and um, the scriptures that make up the the bigger tradition and not just focusing on a single. Let's 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 talk about just the reorganized church and their and their scripture or just the Latter-day Saints in Utah and their scripture. So, I, I think this was so cool. So Jay and I came from different places. Um, you know, we end up at Utah State together and I'm working on Charles Thompson that I have a, a chapter on in this book um, who did this book of Enoch. And I'm sitting down talking to Jay at the library about it and he's been transcribing 
the entire papers of a guy named Stephen Post, which Jay will talk about later, but that includes hundreds of revelations from Sidney Rigdon that people don't know about. And so mm-hmm. here we are sitting down and thinking about these independent scriptures and thinking, wait a second, this is a lot like the Dead Sea Scrolls or something. There's this whole slew of Mormon scripture out there. And so we got to put a book together. And so the idea, because on the front it says scriptures of the Latter-day Saint tradition. So then interpreted, what I'm getting is that it's all of the Latter-day Saint tradition of any sort of like group and break and all those kind of things kind of lumped together to give a a greater, bigger picture of what this, this, this tradition is. So scriptures that likely, I mean, Stephen Post, that's someone that probably people go, I don't know who that is. You know, Thompson, I don't know who you're talking about except for those that would study it. And so this is, for some, groundbreaking in the fact that they go, wait, there's more than just the Book of Commandments and the Doctrine and Covenants? Wait, there's more than all of this? Am, am I understanding kind of the project as a whole correctly? Absolutely. The, uh, you know, we wanted to really make, we wanted to focus on Latter-day Saint tradition. The, the, the term schism is important to understand everything going on. But the idea of thinking about these 400 um, separate movements that have made up the the world of what we once called Mormonism, um, but that that there's some ties between these groups that are are mutual. Even though theologies are really different and really diverse, the idea of how leadership should work is very diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some tie from Book of Mormon believers um, that could that we want to wrap all of this material around so people don't think of oh here's this weird thing over here this weird thing here when we look at it together you think wait a second there's something that joseph smith 200 years ago inspired people to be really creative and the idea of opening this canon and thinking what scripture could look like and so yeah and, th- and then I have to ask so christine you came into the project so that it would actually get done is that how you got You've got it. <laughs> I came in much later. I also shared interests in, um, uh, you know, Latter-day Saints scripture speaking broadly. I, Chris and I had worked on a couple of projects together as uh, when I was an undergraduate and he was a master's student. And But yeah, I came on uh, long after this was first envisioned. Yeah. It took uh, a long time, Richie. These anthologies where you're asking people to contribute. Yeah, you know, we've, we probably would have had if everybody contributed that said i want to contribute we'd probably have a a 30 chapter book Oof. and uh so you just have to hang on i think i'm i'm a little turned off by doing anthologies they're they're a lot of work so you got to they're multi-year processes and so i learned a lot well, I'm excited for all of us to learn a lot from this. Obviously, we're not going to hit on every part of the book, um, but there are some some poignant parts that um, you guys, as I pitched it to you guys to say, hey, you know, what would be of most value to be able to share with people listening? Um, you guys have sort of outlined those things. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to dive right into open canon. It's scriptures of the Latter-day Saint tradition. Best DJ in Utah.com. It's been a while since we've had a new one of these, and I apologize for that. It's because I've been so busy DJing events all over the country, uh, but especially here in Utah. Been able to do some great, uh, you know, weddings. I've done a, a prom or two for different listeners of the Cultural Hall. I love it when you uh, reach out to me at bestdjinutah.com, or uh, you can find the phone number online as well. I would love it if you say, hey, I heard about you on the Cultural Hall. Because maybe, just maybe, I give a cultural hall discount 
uh, all sorts of events. It doesn't have to be a, a wedding. It could be a community event. Maybe it's a ward or youth activity. I'm doing one of those this summer. In fact, just lock the deal down on that. Uh, whatever it may be, if you need music to accompany your event or you just need a great MC, I would love to be able to help you out. You're simply going to need to go to bestdjinutah.com. Hi, friends. Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops. Our lifetime service guarantee has become the most trusted warranty in the industry. You can get a brand new PC Laptops desktop computer, and they start at only $29 a month. Check us out at PCLaptops.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, remember, you can always send us an email. It's contact at theculturalhall.com. You get that inclination that you're like, you know, I want to give a guest suggestion in the middle of the night. You can do it without waking me up. Contact at theculturalhall.com. If you like this episode or other episodes, you can also just send an email and say, hey, you know what? Really great episode. Or you can say, you should have those people back on and be able to talk more about open canon. Whatever the thing may be, the email address is contact at theculturalhall.com. Um, driving right in, in the book, and this question is for Chris, you talk about the Joseph Smith canon. Uh, uh, help help people out. What do you mean by that? And how does it differ from other canons? And what are the other canons? Yeah, so we talk about canons as uh, these are the accepted orthodox understanding of scripture in any tradition. And okay. so currently the LDS canon is the standard works, right? The Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, and the Doctrine and Covenants. So we had to think, and canons differ, right? So, so the Community of Christ canon doesn't include the Pearl of Great Price. It includes a different Doctrine and Covenants. It includes uh, the Bible, but they're using often the Joseph Smith translation at different points in their history, or now uh, rarely the King James Version that Latter-day Saints do use, right, um, as well as the Book of Mormon. So the Joseph Smith canon is an effort to get to sort of the baseline. What is it when any movement showed up in the 19th century? What was the canon that they they started thinking about um, if they were coming directly from the church in 1844? And so the Joseph Smith canon, or what we call the standard canon, includes some understanding of the Bible um, through Joseph Smith's life that was uh, you know, de facto the King James Version, but not really. He's Joseph Smith translation, even though it's not published or shared widely, there's a couple chapters that are published in what today is the Book of Moses. Um, there's also tra additional translations that he does from Hebrew and Greek that just shows up in sermons. So some concept of the Bible, the Book of Mormon, um, and some selections of Joseph's revelations. And as you already mentioned, you know, we had the Book of Commandments and then the Doctrine and Covenants. And so just what that Book of Revelations uh, looks like uh, depends on the moment. And so we have, you know, I already mentioned what the Latter-day LDS version of the canon is in the standard works. We have other groups that actually reduce the Joseph Smith canon. So the Bickertonites, um, Church of Jesus Christ in, uh, in Pennsylvania will say, hey, we should only stick to the Book of Mormon and the Bible. These mm -hmm. other revelations aren't essential. Um, and the Church of Christ Temple lot um, in Independence, Missouri, um, has taken that same idea. Revelations, for the Bickertonites, the revelations aren't really used at all. For the uh, for the Church of Christ Temple lot, the revelations are kind of treated as commentary, not essential to that canon. Um, so I, I find that so interesting. Each of these groups are kind of determining how that canon works. And 
cannons can get really large, right? So because we're a people that believe in an open canon, if you go and talk to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints located in Voree, they have uh, the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants. They don't have the Pearl of Great Price, but they have the Book of the Law of the Lord. Um, and it can just expand. So we have, within our Latter-day Saint tradition, we have lots of different canons, different groupings of scripture that different communities have said, these are the ones we're going to cite at church. So so putting it in context for the, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints today, that is 2023, compared to just even then, the canon that we observe in the main Brighamite church now, that includes things like Doctrine and Covenants section 138 and some of these other things. Is that correct? Absolutely. So our Doctrine and Covenants, the great thing about these this selections of revelations is that we're every group is selecting their own version. So yeah, Brighamites, we've added revelations. 1876, Orson Pratt is given the assignment to add to the Doctrine and Covenants. And he comes up with, was it 26 additional revelations that he's uh, found that such as the civil war prophecy that people didn't publish earlier or uh, excerpts from people's journals, learning from Joseph that we've accepted as uh, revelations at the same time, community of Christ is wrestling because they've stopped practicing or they, they they've wrestled with whether to practice baptism for the dead or other things revealed at the end of Joseph's life. And so they've worked on reducing the canon, reducing this collection of revelations. So uh, really fascinating story. The community of Christ took uh, these revelations about baptism of the dead and put it into an appendix first, a historical appendix. And then gradually over time, they did what Lachlan Mackay, an apostle for their church, calls the appendectomy. They removed the appendix entirely, right? So now they have this uh, this core of really earlier revelations from Joseph that stay within their canon. Okay. Okay. So I'm I, I think I'm starting to get kind of this the idea of what this is and kind of where we're gonna we're gonna go in in the later part of this that we're gonna really be able to talk about some of those particular um, scripts that have been canonized within various traditions. Great. Okay. Uh, the foreword by Philip Barlow uh, is an endorsement for the project. But for those who don't know what a big deal that is. Who is Philip Barlow, and why is that a why is that a big deal, Christine? <laughs> uh, well, Philip Barlow, um, as most of you may know or may not know, uh, was one of the first. Well, was the first Mormon Studies Chair. He he worked up at Utah State University, uh, and uh, he wrote the book uh, Mormons in the Bible. So, for this particular project, you know, Latter Day Scripture is within Philip Barlow's wheel house. Um, he's a brilliant scholar right now. He works at the Maxwell Institute at Brigham Young University. Um, but uh, why we invited him to write the forward beyond that uh, is a little bit more personal. So as Jay mentioned, um, the book began at least conceptually at Utah State University, where we were all students. So Philip Barlow is a longtime mentor to each one of us. And um, actually, it's kind of a funny story, and I don't know that Philip Barlow would actually remember it, but when Chris and I were young student students, I was an undergraduate, Christopher was a master's student, we went off to Independence and we presented some of our scholarship, which is not actually in this book, but on Latter-day Saint mm -hmm. scripture at a um, uh, 
Community of Christ Academic Conference. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was John Whitmer. It might've been Restoration Studies. I can't recall, but uh, we presented our script. We presented our work and sat down. And I think this was my second academic presentation. So I was, I was really nervous mm-hmm. and I was scared to death of the Q&A. <laughs> and I remember the first person that stood up was a gentleman uh, who then asked the question, why in the world would we take any of this scholarship seriously? I don't understand why you're studying it. These are all these tiny little schisms. They don't matter. We have Community of Christ. We have the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We have a large population there, but who cares about, you know, I was at that point uh, studying Fred Collier's uh, scripture um, and uh, and uh, my the, Chris and, and another colleague were studying some other smaller groups and and uh, I remember Philip Barlow standing and <laughs> and to our defense, getting up and basically giving, uh, you know, in in a bite size the end this forward that he writes for us in this book. And in the forward, he basically says, you know, we can't know, you know, we can't know one language without knowing many languages, right? Mm-hmm. We can't know religion, one religion, our own religion, without really uh, understanding other religions, like putting it in context, understanding how uh, we as a religious tradition or how as a particular religious tradition has come to define themselves in conversation with other communities. Um, and and so, you know, uh, beyond Philip Barlow being a, a brilliant academic with, you know, who has for a long time, studied Latter-day Saint scripture. There's kind of that personal aspect, uh, and and it's really meaningful to eat. I know all of us that he was willing to to write that forward. Yeah, it, it's almost like that uh, that uh, academic like attaboy or way to go or you know like pat on the shoulder. Like yeah, we we've, we've got it. That's awesome. I love that. And it leads right into uh, my next question. I'll give this to you, Jay. So if 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 I've understand the the project at this point, it's um these can or these um different writings of different um kind of groups in the intersection. And so I guess a question that maybe just uh you know uh an, uh I almost called myself a dumb dumb, but I'm trying not to do that. But someone like me that's just like you know I I go to church on Sunday and I'm doing the things and leading my best life that I can. Why would I want? What is the value? What can I take away from a a, a book like this or um from studying these other groups and and some of their their canon, some of their scripture? That's an excellent question. Um, and actually, I, I think Christine answered that quite well, but I want to I just take, take it a little bit further. Um, so to, to really understand your own faith tradition is, is, to, is to understand it in context. And so for, for a book like this, um, it's, it's really a chance to open up your eyes, broad, broaden your horizon, um, see see your own faith in the context of the wider tradition of our of, among our Latter Day Saint brothers and sisters. Um, I think uh, I was going to say, can you can you give me a for instance, because uh, or or maybe an example of or 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 let's walk it out a little bit because I, I you know i can hear the people that are like listen i'm barely getting through the book of mormon once a year or you know i have the time to do this what you're asking is for me to take on another thing that isn't part of the you know the canonized thing and that i need and can gain value from that walk that out a little bit for me what what does it really look like i'm sure value right any sort of intelligence is value but but is there is there something maybe that you've learned that has affected your walk, your faith, because of of these different things that you've studied. Yeah, that's that's 
that's the most meaningful part of this project to me personally. Um, what what I've come to see, um, you know, putting putting on my my uh, believer hat for a moment as as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, what this has allowed me to see is that my my brother Stephen Post, um, who chose to follow Sidney Rigdon, well, among other things, but that's a longer story. <laughs> But <laughs> Stephen Post, who chose to follow uh, Sidney Rigdon, had faith in the Book of Mormon, had faith in the prophet Joseph Smith, and exer the, exercised that faith by following the person who he thought was the legitimate um, heir <laughs> to, to Revelation and to, to leading the church. And his, his faith, though not in, in strict alignment with, with my belief, um, is inspiring to me, hmm. and and when I when I choose to now taking off my <laughs> Larry Saint hat, when I when I choose to look at that as a religious study scholar, take it seriously, and and treat his faith um, on on its own merits instead of trying to throw judgment on it. It's these are amazing stories. They're beautiful stories. They're, they're stories of faith, perseverance, um, striving for Zion. It's it's it. The echoes are of of what our experiences as Utah Larry Saints. Um, the the experiences are are uncannily similar, and and inspiring. You know, a, a quick jaunt aside. We we have some questions that we talked about that we would share. Uh, I have one that I'd like to throw in and and toss this to Chris. It seems that. Um, that uh, those that uh, take some sort of issue with the church, they're more than willing to study all sorts of different writings and traditions and and whatever to be able to reinforce, you know, what they feel about the church, right? Like I read this and and can you believe that these people said this about Joseph Smith? Of course that's true and they'll do it. But within um, those that are faithful within the church, we don't find ourselves exploring lots of different things outside of of, of what is canon. Why do you think that is? And and why do you think it is also that that those that are looking um, at that way to kind of leave the church are are willing to open to to something like that, and we're so close-minded toward it? Yeah, I. So one of the the questions sometimes people have asked me is whether I'm trying to actually increase, like, am I hoping uh, a Brighamite Latter Day Saint will accept this other book as scripture for them? Uh -huh. And of course, that's not my goal. Um, I want us to see this. Uh, I do want us to understand other people and be compassionate about them. But I think often we don't study widely because we have a lot of things to study, right? Mm -hmm. I think you, you hit on it. We we have so many things that people are, are asking us to dig into. And so what I would like for a project like this, I especially appreciate a podcast somebody can listen to quickly and get information from it. But I think it's often there's there's a 10% of us that are interested in digging into other things. And here's an example of things that uh, people haven't dug into because for the most part, Latter-day Saint scholars are so focused on their own traditions still, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We're constantly wanting to kind of curate our past. So it's the stuff that, you know, either we're defending things or we're, uh, promoting those things we want people to believe. And in this case, uh, really my underlining point is just to look at Latter-day Saint creativity, 
I see it in the sort of same lines of, uh, I teach a LDS literature class and uh, I see it right in line with that. We're, we're looking into people who uh, have had inspiration from the larger culture. Um, I imagine God is invested in parts of it, but I, I'm really looking at humanity here and there and humanity struggle to understand God. And just like I read books from Jewish writers and Christian writers as they struggle um, to understand God, I think these works have that same same usefulness. So we hope we can inspire some of that 10%, maybe 1% um, to pick up and think, of, think in a new direction um, about their faith. You know, it's interesting that you say some of that. When I think about um, like various uh, works or things that I've read or, or studied, that what comes to my mind is the lectures on faith, which was a part of, you know, what what members of the of the Brighamite and also of the reorganized church included. I think maybe maybe that's a false assumption, but included it as part of canon. And then at some point we went, no, 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 no. Let's put let's put that away or you know, focus on the other things. Christine, what, give me give me a little bit about that. Why? Why was it accepted widely for a while? And now why do some people, as they're listening to this, go, what? What is this lectures on faith, huh? Yeah, I think lots of people are probably vaguely familiar with uh, the lectures on faith. So they come out of Kirtland School of Prophets. They're a series of uh, theological lectures. And part of, the, part of the issue is, of course, that they have no clear author. So, or at least the authorship is, is clearly debated. Is it Sidney Ridden? Is it Joe Smith? Is it someone else? Is it a collective writing? Um, and the other problem that we have as the church rolls forward into the Nauvoo era, of course, is that some of the theology that uh, the lectures of faith touches on doesn't really hold up. So we begin to develop kind of new theological perspectives in Nauvoo, and they these become they become kind of odds at, at uh, you know odds at each, with each other. Um, and so, you know, this chapter that I wrote on or co-authored, I, I really just kind of give it a, a minor facelift list, lift. I, I um, kind of add an addendum to it. But uh, this chapter really gives us some insight into kind of the messiness of scripturalization and, and decanonization. You know, what makes something scripture? Is it a vote? Is it, you know, thus saith the Lord? Is it, uh, you know, from the Doctrine and Covenants, whatever a prophet speaks when moved upon by the Holy Ghost? Um, you know, uh, you know, what makes scripture. And then on the other end, when it doesn't make the cut any longer, you know, what do you do? How do you decanonize it? How do you determine uh, what to do with it? So this is run, this one's really fascinating because it seems like across the broad Latter-day Saint tradition, no one really knows what to do with this. Um, uh, and so we have all sorts of uh, responses to it. The RLDS church early on uh, is like, this is an essential aspect of our faith. And then, you know, under Joseph Smith III's, our you know, the first, the prophet, the founder, right, uh, of this of the organization, it's actually decanonized. Um, you know, this is 24 years before the Latter Day Saint uh, Church of Jesus Christ Latter Day Saint decanonizes it. Um, and of course, probably for some of those reasons that we just discussed, but for La uh, the RLDS, they don't really say specifically why they decanonize it. In 1952, they turn into a pamphlet, and that's distributed, so it kind of remains, although not canon, some sort of, you know, some part of, of the tradition's uh, theological perspective. Um, the remnant church, they canonize them, but that's because they're committed to the curtain era theology. We're not so excited about <laughs> Nauvoo theology, right? So it makes sense for the remnant church. The Cutlerites, um, 
uh, they actually use this as a, you know, once LDS and the RLDS had decanonized it, well, the Cutlerites uh, turn and say, you know, the decanonization of the of of these lectures is proof of the LDS and RLDS apostasy hmm. uh, from the church, right? Like here we go, we got the proof. Yep. Um, and so that you know these lectures are really fascinating because we we see how they're being used to define various traditions against other traditions, right? Mm -hmm. They become a metric of authenticity or a metric of authority or, you know, proof of, of being God's one true church. Um, and so, it, you know, this is, this is a really fascinating chapter, although it's, it's short. So a, a, a quick question, how does something become decanonized? Like when we, when we didn't do that within the lectures of faith, is it like they hold up the book and we go, I don't even recognize you anymore. Get out of here. Or like a tearing procedure or, or how does oh, something I, become decanonized? I wish there was some sort of ritualistic sort of decanonization process. <laughs> I, I think it just varies from tradition to tradition. Sometimes it's just pooled. Sometimes there's a, a vote um within the know, within I, the brighamite latter-day saint tradition how did we decanonize it well i i don't know i i don't actually I, yeah i have to i'd have to we just published a new version that didn't have it in it yeah there, I, I don't know that there was any ritual that came along with the decanonization of it but under, under challenge we just had a new when he, he when he took care of the doctrine and covenants it's it was just removed which is so interesting, right? You remember, Richie, that it was, uh, it's called Doctrine and Covenants because the doctrine, the theology is the lectures on faith, right? Yeah. And so now we have the covenants exclusively. Christine, one last question, follow up for you on that. Do you feel like it's a little bit of, and you'll forgive the crudeness of the of the comparison, but like the the baby in the bathwater, like there was there was some good in it, but because we couldn't really wrap our head around it, we just went, oh, we don't want to deal with it. Blah. Yeah. I think it's a tricky one. I think I think the authorship question is where it really becomes hard. Well, if we don't accept Sidney Rigdon as a prophet, and we know that he's gone off and created his a, a separate church that's in opposition to this one, well, how do we hold these up with knowing or believing that really he's the author here? You know, it's not it's not exclusively Joseph's voice. It's it's I think it's just a little bit too messy. And so yeah, I think you're right. It's baby bathwater. Everything has to go. Yeah. Let's take another break. When we come back, we got a few more questions that we'll wrap out. Plus, we ask three questions of everyone who steps into the cultural hall. We'll do that coming back in the third block. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative Creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Culture Hall, remember you can become a Patreon saint of the Culture Hall. You just go to patreon.com forward slash the Culture Hall. It's uh, what we like to call putting your money where your ears are. This stuff ain't free, people. It's time. And when now with over 700 episodes, it constitutes more than 12 years of my life. And you don't have to pay for it. You just get it for free. So maybe, maybe I ask you to think about uh, donating back. You go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. 
Jay, this next question is for you. We hear a lot about Signe Rigdon, I think, um, for a time, for a short season uh, within the church. And then uh, similar, unfortunately, to like Emma, we just kind of go, ah, well, that was the time. And now let's move on. Now we're in Utah and Brigham Young and the Salt Lake Temple and all the things. And we sort of leave that behind. Uh, the chapter that you sort of co-authored is all about Sidney Rigdon and also Phoebe Rigdon. I would love to know um, what your part in this consists of and what we can learn from the two of them. Excellent. Excellent question. Um, I want to I want to back up because you, you you say you say uh, an interesting thing. So Sydney does fall off the radar, right? For the for the the Brighamite Church, um, but there there have been a few people that have written about him in this time period that I'm that I'm writing. Also, it's there's there's Ian Barber who writes about the female priesthood that I'm about to get into, um, and there's uh, Richard Van Wagener who writes a biography of of Sydney. And goes through this period, and a guy named a guy named Guy Guy Bishop um, writes about Stephen Post and his role in this church, and and so this though this story is not well known, it is out there, um, and and I want to talk about um, Phoebe's role, and so Phoebe, Sydney's wife, as she's as she's working with uh, Sydney on on the revelations that he's sending to his church in Iowa the Church of Jesus Christ of the Children of Zion, um, she, is given, she is given a role, a, a, re, a revealed role, um, to be the prophetess of Zion. And so she has this kind of dual role with, with Sydney as the prophet, seer, and revelator, and, and Phoebe as the prophetess. And this, this develops um, over time into the Rigdon's concept of a, of a female priesthood with female priesthood quorums. Um, rather unique among the Latter-day Saint uh, yeah. tradition. Um, there, there are sparks of this elsewhere, um, including uh, including women in, in the priesthood. Um, but this this seems to develop very rapidly for for the Rigdons, where uh, the concept of the elect lady given to uh, to Emma is expanded into what's called an elect sisterhood. Which is which is quorums of female priests, female priestesses, and their their responsibility is to is to expound scripture um, and teach the branches of this church. And Phoebe's Phoebe's job is to produce the lessons or the lesson material, uh, uh, a come follow me, you might say, for for this church about the Book of Mormon. Um, she produces a, uh, I think it's about 20-ish lessons about the Book of Mormon, and they're distributed to this elect sisterhood who would then in turn teach the branches about the Book of Mormon and, and encourage the members to, um, to live like their Book of Mormon forebears. So then a question that I have around that then is if it's focused on the Book of Mormon and within the Brighamite Church, we, you know, believe, follow, read, study, uh, all the things within the Book of Mormon, are those things that would be applicable or because it's sort of that branch, it takes a, a slant towards things that that maybe Sidney Rigdon had adopted within within that church? Meaning, can, could we study those and gain things from that for, for our own faith? That's that's an excellent question. I, um, and I've, I've looked a little bit at that. And so I can I can answer that question in part. Um, the the tone, the tenor of those of those lessons really is, it's like 
um, reciting the story of, of Nephi and his faithfulness and encouraging the believers to be like Nephi. Uh -huh. So, so that's, a, that's a theme that we'll, that we'll get in our Sunday school lessons, right? Sure. And so Phoebe's doing the same thing. She'll talk about various characters or stories and and then and then just draw draw lessons likening the scriptures unto them um to to say let's let's keep our faith let's build our faith like like these book of mormon characters and so i think i think there's value there in looking at these um i don't i don't go into a great depth about these lessons in in the chapter mm -hmm. um, but that's that's some other work for a, a future time well, it's exciting to me because uh, because there are not enough um, Come Follow Me podcasts. We can take the lessons from Phoebe Rigdon, and that's going to be a brand new podcast. No, I'm just joking. I can see someone <laughs> listening to that and going, oh, there's there's a catch. There's a thing that we could do to kind of be able to introduce that. Um, we, we talk about uh, other contributors um, to the book. So am I to assume then it's not just the three of you, but that it was a culmination of lots of work? Who are these individuals, Chris? Yeah, you know, it's such a great group. So we have uh, very well-known established scholars who participated. So Kathleen Flake and Laurie Mathley Kipp, uh, Matthew Bowman, who've all been, uh, uh, who've all held major positions um, in universities throughout the United States. Um, we have a uh, a group of pretty well-known scholars that have uh, uh, from BYU and Utah universities, um, Casey Paul Griffiths getting a lot of interest lately, and Janice Johnson, Joe Spencer, who's a very well-known Book of Mormon scholar who looks at the RLDS tradition um, and their response to the Book of Mormon in this, in this book. We have Richard Saunders, who is a fabulous archivist at Southern Utah University and has been studying. He did his thesis on uh, Latter-day Saint scripture, particularly of uh, a guy named James Brewster hmm. uh, 30 years ago. Um, and then we have a, a couple of scholars that I'm, I'm really excited about. Um, Crystal Vanell is a French RLDS scholar, excuse me, Community of Christ scholar. Mm -hmm. And we have Daniel P. Stone, who is a uh, he's a historian, he's a, an archivist, but he's also a member of the Bickerdonite faith. Um, and then we have Christopher Smith, who is a PhD, graduated from Claremont, but he's from outside the tradition altogether. Hmm. Um, and so it's really a hodgepodge of different scholars who've taken an interest into in this material. And um, I'm pretty excited to see how diverse they are and um, and just the amount of the, the the sort of level of scholar that was willing to dive in and spend a year um, looking at this material. Lots of them um, had already discovered their interest in a project. And mm -hmm. in some cases, you know, it, this is this is a topic that many Mormon studies scholars know something about. They've had a, you know, they found a reference to a, a different revelation, um, but it's not something they've probed in depth. And so this is really the first time um, I would say in, in the 1930s, there was a guy named Charles Arbaugh, um, who was a non-Modern-day Saint scholar at uh, the University of Chicago. And he wrote a book called Revelation and Mormonism. And I think it's the only other book 
that's ever like looked at all of these revelations as a sort of collected whole. Hmm. Um, very different beast. But I'm yeah, I was I was so grateful to work with this cast of characters. You know, I I I love hearing about collaborations like that, especially ones that transcend like those re religious tribes or divides that we sort of have. I'm a this. I yeah. study this. I look at this this way. But the fact that you can have so many minds from different perspectives, different um, ways of study, the things that they're interested in, to be able to come together and and make this such a rich, um, you know, supply of, of information about this that, as you mentioned, ha hasn't but barely been dipped into. And so um, knowing that it's not just a single narrative or one one guy's slanted way of looking at all of these things, I think I think that that speaks to the power of um, of what you guys have put together. It's my favorite part of interviews right now where I get to get to ask you guys um, favorites. I know we all have favorite children. We all have uh, favorite jobs that we've ever had. People will say, no, they don't have a favorite child. I know that that's a lie. So I would love it um, if within the book, maybe you guys each take. Uh, uh, maybe less than a minute. Tell me about your favorite chapter or a favorite part of it um, that you think would entice people to go on that link that we have in the show notes to purchase this book. And I'll start ladies first with Christine. Well, that's very kind of you. Okay. I uh, There's lots of chapters. All of these chapters, as Chris pointed out, are fantastic. So I'm actually just going to point to Kathleen Flick's article. It's actually a republication. I, I think she first published it in Religion and American Culture. Uh, but I love this article because it provides... Um, some context for the scriptural tradition as a whole. It reminds us of the power of story, the role of narrative theology, that Joseph's experience becomes um, kind of an, a collective ideal for communing with the divine. And in this case, interpreting suffering and the sacralization of suffering. Mm. Uh, and in this chapter, Kathleen discusses how these letters that Joseph wrote while he was in Liberty Jail become scripture. And I think that it's a really fascinating chapter. So that's my less than 60 second plug. Yeah. Uh, but there are so many that are really fantastic. Now, gentlemen, we shouldn't have had her go first because she did a really great job. That was that was perfect because I'm like, yeah, what chapter is that? And I'm hesitating from looking over at my book that I've got just off camera. All right. So, Jay, let me hear you. With, pitch it to me. What what What's the favorite here? Um, I, I really like Dan Stone's chapter. Um, Dan is is the uh, biographer of William Bickerton. Um, and he he takes he takes his research and, and fleshes out the idea of revelation and scripture among the Bickertonite group, the Church of Jesus Christ in, in Pennsylvania. And um, the the idea is that scripture and revelation are cooperative. It's it's a level playing field, well fairly level playing field uh, among the members of the church. And so, as opposed to what happened in in Kirtland, with with Joseph Smith kind of asserting um, primacy re for re for receiving revelation for the church, um, this this it's a lot looser with with William Bickerton. There's there's recognition that revelation comes to all the members of the church, mm. and and other people can be viewed as as prophets, if not the prophet. Um, and that's that, that's an exciting concept that, that Dan explores in his chapter, and I love it. Okay. All right, Chris, you saw how to do it. Let's hear it. I'm going to talk about Casey Paul Griffith's chapter. This is the Levitical Writings of the House of Aaron. And Casey's a BYU professor. He grew up in the West Desert near this communal society called 
the sons of Aaron, and they had a book of scripture called Levitical Writings. And today, sons of Aaron don't see themselves as descendants of Mormonism. Hmm. But when the book was written, the the scriptures, they they were. And so it starts off, these restored writings, starts off with section 137 and starts counting, because the Doctrine and Covenants went, went up to 136 at the time. But such an interesting group who sees themselves, they see Latter-day Saints as Ephraim and they're Levi, and they're trying to build a, a temple in the desert, a tabernacle there. And so this is how their rituals will be restored and uh, fascinating story that includes visions and voices and uh, found tablets, found cat skin writings. Very interesting. Um and they're still around. They're just, they have a beautiful little property where people have their private school and they've until very recently dressed uniquely and so on. Um, fascinating thing. It's very rare. We haven't had a scholar who's really done sort of ethnographic work among this commune um, in our lifetime. So. All Great. right, all right, all right. I'll go and I'll buy the book for a loved one and I'll give it to them. There's a link in the show notes that if people are like, yes, this this scratches an itch that I've had for a long time, you can find it there and be able to, to purchase this awesome book. Now, uh, our, our time is short and there are the three questions that I want to ask everyone uh, that we ask uh, everyone who steps into the cultural hall. The the question that I want to ask before that, though, is um, Obviously, there are stuff. There are things that were left on the cutting room floor, as it were, things that didn't make it into the book. Is there uh, a, a thing, maybe from each of you or collectively, a thing that you're like, "Oh man, we really wish we would have included this," or next project will definitely highlight something like this that you can kind of tease us towards future things. One of the chapters that didn't make it into the book, but that I was writing, and then we just decided, let's just get this to the press. Uh, was a chapter on the remnant church, so snufferite, the snufferites, right? Um, and uh, hopefully, I can return to that soon. And <laughs> yeah, a lot of interest <laughs> but, but, in that for sure. But really fascinating, right? Uh, their their whole story of how uh, their book of, books of scripture were scripturalized, and kind of the communal aspect of creating and deciding and canonizing. It's it's interesting, and it certainly should have been a part of this book. Yeah, but so, it can't. It sometimes, sometimes done into the press is better than perfect, right? That's right. Yeah. You Jay, what about you? Oh, sorry, Chris. Whoever. Oh, Chris. I was. I'm going to jump in. I I think a chapter on the sealed portion um, would have been wonderful. You know, there's about three or four. Well, there's at least four variants of sealed portions that have been revealed in the last forty years. And I think it'd be really fun to put those in conversation. Mm, that's something we don't talk enough about, right? In fact, it, it was in a recent interview that someone brought that up and I went, oh yeah, we do believe in that. <laughs> I had sort of placed it in the back of my brain for a minute. All right, Jay, what about for you next Next, or what you were hoping or what got missed from the book? I'm, I'm going to talk about what's next. Um, the, the three of us are, are looking to um, to produce another another work where, where whereas this this volume that just came out is is looking uh, a study of the of the people and the and the situations around the revelations. We're looking to produce kind of a source book where we're transcribing and and annotating the actual scriptures themselves that are mentioned in our book and some others. Um, so like so like Brewster's um, book of Estrus and Thompson's um, book of Enoch, uh, the Bicker tonight revelations that I just mentioned a minute ago, and and Sidney Rigdon's. 
Sydney and Phoebe's 100 revelations that they produced, mm. where we'll transcribe those and, and publish those. So I'm, I'm super excited about that project. Awesome. Awesome. All right. There are three questions we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I'll ask those of you right now, and we'll go in this order for each of these. It'll go Jay, then Chris, then Christine. Uh, so the first question is, Is do you have a calling right now? And if so, what is it, Jay? <laughs> I am the finance clerk in the West Bountiful Ninth Ward. Yeah, he is. <laughs> I have a calling with Christine, and we teach five-year-olds yeah. primarily. Nice. So this interview has been a lot like your your calling. Is that what you're? <laughs> <laughs> well, that that question obviously was going to be to you, Chris, for Christine, but she he answered it already. So, unless you yeah, have something that, to add, that's it. Primary. <laughs> yeah, uh, Jay, if you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Oh man, actually, this this particular calling has been by far the most fulfilling for me. So I'm going to stick with with my uh, finance clerk, Chris. Um, uh, mission, I, I would like to teach an institute class that all missionaries take with me throughout their mission. Ooh, yeah, that's super cool. In fact, pause, that, that is a really great idea. Why, why missionaries don't have a, a thing that they can access? Maybe they do. I don't think that they do, but something that they can access on the weekly that can study as missionaries from top from people like yourselves that's you might be onto something chris i'd like i don't, I don't think anybody's going to pick me for that job but it should be done <laughs> yeah that real i really love that okay christine oh i don't have a great answer for this i i uh right now as a primary teacher i don't really get a whole lot of relief society or ever um but i really do enjoy the women of the church a great deal so something that keeps me uh connected to the women of the church it's that's the ideal yeah uh, the final question, we ask you to interpret it however you may, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? For me? Oh, sorry, Jay. Yeah, you it's first. Jay first. Come on, Chris. Sorry about that. <laughs> you, you've already got yours, Chris. Go. I don't have, I, that's a good question. You know, for me, I'm a convert to the faith. I don't know how I answered this last time, but uh, I I uh, love the idea that we have individual testimonies based on personal experiences with God. Um, and that's the centerpiece of my faith. All right, Jay, he stalled for you. Okay, thanks, Chris. Um, I think I think for me, um, internally, just as a as a person who loves history, um, I I love the focus on remembering. Um, whether it's remembering our own ancestry or remembering our spiritual ancestry through the scriptures. Um, I, I love the focus on remembering. All right, Christine. I'm also a convert. Um, so I like that Latter-day Saints expand the concept of atonement, not only to include the dying for our sins, right? The making restitution, but the suffering on our behalf. And so that Christ makes this a communal thing, right? Your pain is my pain, and I carry that, and I understand it. I think that's profound. Yeah. Well, the book is called Open Canon. It's scriptures of the Latter-day Saint tradition. Uh, there is a link for it in the show notes in addition to the bios 
of these three, my guests, Jay Burton, Christine Blythe, and Chris Blythe. Uh, thank you guys for being here. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Chris at Alpine Lakes Travel, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, and Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really gotta go on the Culture Hall show.